15. Rifles to patrol the country in search of the escaping prisoners, with tall guidons to attract their attention if they should be in concealment. Many of the fugitives were thus rescued. The adventures of two, as above given, must serve for example of them all. The sinking of the ALBMARLE. Naval operations in the American Civil War were particularly distinguished by the active building of ironclads. The North built and employed them with marked success, the South, with marked failure. With praiseworthy energy and at great cost the Confederates produced ironclad vessels of war in Norfolk Harbor, on Roanoke River, in the Mississippi, and elsewhere. Yet, with the exception of the one day's rate of ruin of the Merrimack in Hampton Roads, their labor was almost in vain. Their expensive war vessels went down in the engulfing waters or went up in flame and smoke. Their efforts in this direction were simply conspicuous examples of non-success. We propose here to tell the tale of disaster of the Albemarle, one of these ironclads, and the great deed of heroism which brought her career to an untimely end. The Albemarle was built on the Roanoke River in 1863. She was of light draught, but of considerable length and width her hull above the water line being covered with four inches of iron bars. Such an armor would be like paper against the great guns of today, then it served its purpose well. The competition for effectiveness between rifled cannon and armor plates had not yet begun. April, 1864, had arrived before this formidable opponent of the Union blockading fleet was ready for service. Then, one misty morning, down the river she went, on her mission of death and destruction. The opening of her career was promising. She attacked the Union gunboats and fort at Plymouth, near the mouth of the river, captured one of the boats, sunk another, and aided in forcing the fort to surrender, its garrison being taken prisoners. It had been assailed at the same time by a strong land force, and the next day Plymouth itself was taken by the Confederate troops, with a heavy Union loss in men and material. So far favoring fortune had attended the Albemarle, enlivened with success. On a morning in May she steamed out into the deeper waters of Albemarle Bay, confident on playing the same role with the wooden vessels there that the Merrimack had played in Hampton Roads. She failed in this laudable enterprise. The Albemarle was not so formidable as the Merrimack. The steamers of war which she was to meet were more formidable than the Congress and the Cumberland. She first encountered the Sassaquas, a vessel of powerful armament, more agile than the ironclad. The Sassaquas played round her, exchanging shots and seeking a vulnerable point, at length, under a full head of steam, she dashed on the monster, striking a blow which drove it bodily half under the water, recovering from the blow, the two vessels, almost side by side, hurled one hundred pound balls upon each other, most of those of the Sassuc was bounded from the mailed sides of her antagonist, like hail from stone walls, but three of them entered a port, and did sad work within. In reply the Albemarle sent one of her great bolts through a boiler of the Sassaquas, filling her with steam. So far the ironclad had the best of the game, but others of the fleet were now near at hand, the balls which had entered her port had done serious injury, she was no longer in fighting trim, she turned and made the best of her way back to Plymouth, firing as she fled, this ended her career for that summer, but repairs were made, and she was put in fighting trim again. Another gunboat was building as a consort, unless something were quickly done she would soon be in Albemarle Sound again, with possibly a different tale to tell from that of her first assault. At this critical juncture Lieutenant William B. Cushing, a very young but a very bold officer, proposed a daring plan, no less a one than to attack the Albemarle at her wharf, explode a torpedo under her hull, and send her, if possible, 
to the bottom of the Roanoke. He proposed to use a swift steam launch, run up the stream at night, and assail the ironclad where she lay in fancied security. From the bow of the launch protruded a long spar, loaded at its end with a 100-pound dynamite cartridge. The spar could be lowered by pulling one rope, the cartridge detached by pulling another, and the dynamite exploded by pulling a third. The proposed exploit was a highly perilous one. The Albemarle lay eight miles up the river. Plymouth was garrisoned by several thousand soldiers, and the banks of the stream were patrolled by sentinels all the way down to the bay. It was more than likely that none of the adventurers would live to a return, yet Cushing and the crew of seven daring men whom he selected were willing to take the risk, and the naval commanders, to whom success in such an enterprise promised the most valuable results, agreed to let them go. It was a dark night in which the expedition set out, that of October 27th. 1864, up the stream headed the little launch, with her crew of seven, and towing two boats, each containing ten men, armed with cutlasses, grenades, and revolvers, silently they proceeded, keeping to midstream, so as to avoid alarming the sentinels on the banks, in this success was attained, the eight miles were passed and the front of the town reached without the confederates having an inkling of the disaster in store for them, reaching Plymouth. Lieutenant Cushing came to a quick decision as to what had best be done. He knew the town well. No alarm had been given. He might land a party and take the Albemarle by surprise. He could land his men on the lower wharf, lead them stealthily through the dark streets, leap with them upon the ironclad, surprise the officers and crew, and capture the vessel at her moorings. It was an enterprise of frightful risk, yet Cushing was just the man for it, and his men would follow wherever he should lead. A low order was given. The launch turned and glided almost noiselessly towards the wharf. But she was now only a short distance from the Albemarle, on whose deck the lookout was wide awake. What boat is that? Came a loud hail. No reply. The launch glided on. What boat is that? Came the hail again. Sharper than before. Cast off. Said Cushing. In a low tone. The two boats were loosened and drifted away. The plan of surprise was at an end. The vigilance of the lookout had made it impossible. That of destruction remained. The launch was turned again, and moved once more towards the Albemarle. They were quickly so close that the hull of the ironclad loomed darkly above them. Upon that vessel all was commotion. The unanswered hail was followed by the stringing of rattles, ringing of bells, running of men, and shouting of orders. Muskets were fired at random at the dimly seen black object. Bullets whizzed past the devoted crew. Lights began to flash here and there. A minute before all had been rest and silence, now all was noise, alarm, and commotion. All this did not disconcert the intrepid commander of the launch. His main concern at that moment was an unexpected obstacle he had discovered, and which threatened to defeat his enterprise. A raft of logs had been placed around the ironclad to protect her from any such attack. There she lay, not fifty feet away, but the seemingly insuperable obstacle intervened. What was to be done? In emergencies like that men think quickly and to the point. The raft must be passed, or all was at an end. The logs had been long in the water, and doubtless were slippery with river slime. The launch might be run upon and over them. Once inside the raft, it could never return. No matter for that, he was there to sink the Albemarle. The smaller contingency of losing his own life was a matter to be left for an afterthought. This decision was reached in a moment's thought. The noise above them increased. Men were running and shouting, lights flashing. Landsmen, startled by the noise, hurrying to the river bank, 
Without an instant's delay the launch was wheeled round, steamed rapidly into the stream until a good offing was gained, turned again, and now drove straight forward for the Albemarle with all the power of her engines. As she came near bullets poured like hail across her decks. One tore off the sole of Cushing's shoe, another went through the back of his coat, it was perilously close and hot work. The hail came again, what boat is that? This time Lieutenant Cushing replied. His reply was not in words, however, but in a howitzer load of canister which drove across the Albemarle's deck. The next minute the bow of the launch struck the logs, as had been expected. The light craft slid up on their slippery surfaces, forcing them down into the water. The end of the spar almost touched the iron hull of the destined victim. The first rope was loosened. The spar, with its load, dropped underwater. The launch was still gliding onward, and carrying the spar forward. The second cord was pulled, the torpedo dropped from the spar. At this moment a bullet cut across the left palm of the gallant Cushing. As it did so he pulled the third cord. The next instant a surging column of water was raised, lifting the Albemarle as though the great ironclad were a featherweight. At the same instant a cannon, its muzzle not fifteen feet away, sent its charge rending through the timbers of the launch. The Albemarle, lifted for a moment on the boiling surge, settled down into the mud of her shallow anchorage. Never more to swim, with a great hole torn in her bottom. The torpedo had done its work. Cushing had earned his fame. Surrender, came a loud shout from Confederate lungs. Never, shouted Cushing in reply. Save yourselves, he said to his men. In an instant he had thrown off coat, shoes, sword, and pistols, and plunged into the waters that rolled darkly at his feet, and in which he had just dug a grave for the Albemarle. His men sprang beside him, and struck out boldly for the farther shore. All this had passed in far less time than it takes to tell it. Little more than five minutes had passed since the first hail, and already the Albemarle was a wreck. The launch destroyed, her crew swimming for their lives and bullets from deck and shore pouring thickly across the dark stream. The incensed Confederates hastily manned boats and pushed out into the stream. In a few minutes they had captured most of the swimming crew. One sank and was drowned. One reached the shore. The gallant commander of the launch they failed to find. They called his name. They had learned it from their prisoners. But no answer came, and the darkness veiled him from view. Had he gone to the bottom? Such most of the searchers deemed to be his fate. In a few minutes the light of a blazing fire flashed across the river from Plymouth Wharf. It failed to reveal any swimming forms. The impression became general that the daring commander was drowned. After some further search most of the boats returned, deeming their work at an end. They had not sought far or fast enough. Cushing had reached shore on the Plymouth side before the fire was kindled. He was chilled and exhausted, but he dared not stop to rest. Boats were still patrolling the stream. Parties of search might soon be scouring the river banks, the moments were precious. He must hasten on. He found himself near the walls of a fort, on its parapet, towering gloomily above him. A sentinel could be seen, pacing steadily to and fro. The fugitive lay almost under his eyes. A bushy swamp lay not far beyond, but to reach its shelter he must cross an open space forty feet wide in full view of this man. The sentinel walks away. Cushing makes a dash for life but not half the space is traversed when his backward-glancing eye sees the sentinel about to turn. Down he goes on his back in the rushes, trusting to their friendly shelter and the gloom of the night to keep him from sight. As he lies there, slowly gaining breath after his excited effort, four men two of them officers pass so close that they almost tread on his extended form, seeking him, 
but failing to see what lies nearly under their feet, they pass on. Talking of the night's startling event, Cushing dares not rise again, yet the swamp must be gained, and speedily, still flat on his back, he digs his heels into the soft earth, and pushes himself inch by inch through the rushes, until, with a warm heart throb of hope, he feels the welcome dampness of the swamp, it proves to be no pleasant refuge, the mire is too deep to walk in while above it grow tangled briars and thorny shrubs, through which he is able to pass only as before, by lying on his back, and pushing and pulling himself onward, the hours of the night passed, day dawned, he had made some progress, and was now at a safe distance from the fort, but found himself still in the midst of peril, near where he lay a party of soldiers were at work, engaged in planting obstructions in the river, lest the Union fleet should follow its daring pioneers to Plymouth, now that the Albemarle was sunk, and the chief naval defense of the place gone, just back from the river bank, and not far from where he lay, a cornfield lifted its yellowed plumes into the air, Cushing managed to reach its friendly shelter and observed, and now, almost for the first time since his escape, stood upright, and behind the rustling rose made his way past the soldiers, to his alarm, as he came near the opposite side of the field, he found himself face to face with a man who glared at him in surprise, well he might, for the late trimly dressed lieutenant was now a sorry sight, covered from head to foot with swamp mud, his clothes rent, and blood oozing from a hundred scratches in his skin, he had no reason for alarm, the man was a negro, the dusky face showed sympathy under its surprise, I am a Union soldier, said Cushing, feeling in his heart that no slave would betray him, one Odemez was in the town last night, asked the negro, yes, have you been there, can you tell me anything, Munger Massa, auntie I's been told dad dar's POW's for bad work dar, and the soldiers is bilin' mad, further words passade, in the end the negro agreeing to go to the town, see for himself what harm had been done, and bring back word, Cushing would wait for him under shelter of the corn, the old negro set out on his errand, glad of the opportunity to help one of Massa Lincoln's soldiers, the lieutenant secreted himself as well as he could, and wait, an hour passade, then steps and the rustling of the dry leaves of the corn stalks were heard, the fugitive peeped from his ambush, to his joy he saw before him the smiling face of his dusky messenger, what news, he demanded, stepping joyfully forward, mighty good news, Massa, said the negro, with a laugh, that big iron ship's got a hole in her bottom big enough to drive the wagon in she's deep in the mud, long side the wharf, and folks say she'll never get up again, good, she's done for, then, my work is accomplished, now, old man, tell me how I must go to get back to the ships, the negro gave what directions he could, and the fugitive took to the swamp again, after a grateful goodbye to his dusky friend and a warm godspeed from the latter, it was into a thicket of tangled shrubs that Lieutenant Cushing now plunged, so dense that he could not see ten feet in advance, but the sun was visible overhead and served him as a guide, hour by hour he dragged himself painfully onward, at two o'clock in the afternoon he found himself on the banks of a narrow creek, a small affluent of the Roanoke, he crouched in the bushes on the creek side, peering warily before him, voices reached his ears, across the stream he saw men, a minute's observation apprised him of the situation, the men he saw to be a group of soldiers, seven in number, who had just landed from a boat in the stream, as he watched, they tied their boat to the root of a tree, and then turned into a path that led upward, reaching a point at some distance from the river, they stopped, 
sat down, and began to eat their dinner. Here was an opportunity, a desperate one, but Cushing had grown ready for desperate chances. He had had enough of wandering through mire and thorns. Without hesitation he lowered himself noiselessly into the water, swam across the stream, and tied the boat, pushed it cautiously from the bank, and swam with it down the stream until far enough away to be out of sight of its recent occupants. Then he climbed into the boat and paddled away as fast as possible. There was no sign of pursuit. The soldiers kept in suspiciously at their midday meal. The swamp line creek side served well as a shelter from prying eyes. For hours Cushing pursued his slow course. The sun sank, darkness gathered, night came on. At the same time the water widened around him, he was on the surface of the Roanoke. Onward he paddled, the night crept on till midnight was reached, for ten hours he had been at that exhausting toil. But now before his eyes appeared a welcome sight. The dark hull of a Union gunboat, ship ahoy, came a loud hail from the exhausted man. Who goes there? Answered the lookout on the gunboat. A friend, take me up. The gunboat was quickly in motion. This might be a Confederate ruse. Possibly a torpedo might have been sent to blow them up. They were in dangerous waters. Boats were quickly lowered, and rowed towards the small object on the stream. Who are you? Came the cry, as they drew near. Lieutenant Cushing, or what is left of me? Cushing, was the excited answer. And the Albemarle? We'll never trouble a Union fleet again. She rests in her grave on the muddy bottom of the Roanoke. Loud cheers followed the stirring announcement. The sailors bent to their oars, and quickly had the gallant lieutenant on board. Their cheers were heightened tenfold when the crew of the Valley City heard what had been done. In truth, the exploit of Lieutenant Cushing was one that for coolness, daring, and success in the face of seemingly insuperable obstacles has rarely been equaled in history, and the destruction of the Albemarle ranks with the most notable events in the history of war. Alaska, a treasure house of gold, furs, and fishes in 1867, when the far-seeing Secretary Seward purchased Alaska from the Russian government for 7.200.000, there was an outcry of disapproval equal to that made when Louisiana Territory was purchased from France in 1803. Many of the people called the region, Seward's Folly, and said it would produce nothing but icebergs and polar bears, and General Benjamin F. Butler, representative from Massachusetts, said in the House, if we are to pay this amount for Russia's friendship during the war, then give her the 7.200.000 and tell her to keep Alaska. Representative Washburn, of Wisconsin, exclaimed, I defy any man on the face of the earth to produce any evidence that an ounce of gold has ever been found in Alaska. Today Alaska is yielding in gold area code 10000000 per year, its fisheries are among the richest in the world including more than half the salmon yield of the United States, its forests are of enormous value, its fur seal harvest is without a rival, its territory is traversed by one of the greatest rivers of the world, 2,000 miles long and with more than a 1,000 miles of navigable waters, and it promises to become an important farming and stock-raising region. As for extent, it is large enough to cover more than 20 of our states. In revenue it has repaid the United States the original outlay and several millions more, while Aside from its gold product, its fisheries have netted area code 10000000 and its furs area code 8000000 since its acquisition. Seward, then, was wise in looking upon this purchase as the greatest achievement of his life, though he truly said that it would take the country a generation to find out Alaska's value. 
The most dramatic and interesting portion of the story of Alaska is its gold mining enterprise, and it is of this, therefore, that we propose to speak. The discovery of placer gold deposits in British Columbia led naturally to the surmise that this precious metal might be found farther northward, and as early as 1880 wandering gold hunters had made their way over the passes from Cashier or inward from the coast and were trying the gravel bars of tributaries of the Yukon, finding the yellow metal at several places. The first important find along the Yukon was made on Stewart River in 1885, about 100.000 being taken out in two summers. The next year a good find was made at 40 Mile Creek, finds being made later on 60 Mile Creek, Birch Creek, and other streams. On Birch Creek arose Circle City, named from its proximity to the Arctic Circle, and growing into a well-built and well-conducted little town. Meanwhile a valuable find had been made on Douglas Island, one of the long chain of islands that bound the western coastline, and this has since developed into one of the richest mines in the world. It is not a placer mine. However, but a quartz mine, one needing capital for its development and with no charms for the ordinary gold seeker, the gold is found in a friable and easily worked rock, enabling low-grade ores to be handled at a profit, and today 1500 stamps are busy and the mines are highly profitable. The placer miners, however, have no use for gold that rests in quartz veins and has to be obtained by the aid of costly stamping mills. The gold they seek is that on which nature has done the work of stamping by breaking up the original veins into sands and gravels, with which the freed gold is mixed in condition to be obtained by a simple process of washing. The wandering miners thus prospected Alaska, following the long course of the Yukon and trying its tributary streams, many of them making a living, a few of them acquiring wealth, but none of their finds attracting the attention of the world, which scarcely knew that gold seekers were at work in this remote and almost unknown region. Thus it went on until 1897 when on July 16th a party of miners arrived in San Francisco from the Upper Yukon with a large quantity of gold in nuggets and dust and a story to tell that deeply stirred that old land of gold. On the 17th another steamer put into Seattle with more miners and 800.000 in gold dust, nearly all of it the outcome of a winter's work on a small stream known as the Klondike, entering the Yukon about 50 miles above 40 Mile Creek. The discovery of this rich placer region was made in the autumn of 1896 by an Illinois man named George McCormick, who, in the intervals of salmon fishing, tried his hand at prospecting, and on Bonanville Creek, a tributary of the Klondike, was surprised and overjoyed to find gold in a profusion never before dreamed of in the Alaskan region. The news of the find spread rapidly through Alaska and before winter set in the old diggings were largely deserted. A swarm of eager miners poured into the Klondike region and the frozen earth was torn and rent in their eagerness to reach its yellow treasures. The news of the discovery spread as far and fast as the telegraph could carry it. The richness of the finds surpassed anything ever before found and the whole country was agog. The stories of wonderful fortunes made by miners were testified to by a display of nuggets and sacks of shining gold in stores and hotels. The find of one man being shown in a San Francisco shop window in the shape of $130,000 worth of gold. The old gold fever broke out again as an epidemic. Such a stampede as took place had never before been seen. The stream of picturesque humanity that poured through Seattle and onto the Golden North surpassed the palmy days of 49 when California opened its caves of Aladdin. Every steamer that could be made use of was booked to its full capacity. While many ardent gold seekers were turned away, 
every passenger and every pound of cargo that could be taken on these steamers was loaded and the Hagira was almost instantly in full blast. As it proved, the new find was in Canadian territory, a few miles east of the Alaskan boundary, but the flood of men that set in was mainly American. Many threw up good positions or mortgaged their homes for funds to join the mad migration, oblivious in most cases of the fact that they were setting out to encounter hardships and arctic extremes of temperature for which their home life had utterly unfit them. Warnings were published that those who joined the pioneer flood faced starvation or death by freezing or hardship, but the tide was on and could not be turned, and before the autumn had far advanced thousands had landed at the mushroom settlements of Skagway and Dye laden with the effects they had brought with them and proposing to fight their way against nature's obstacles over the difficult mountain passes and along the little less difficult lakes and streams to the promised land of gold. A village of log houses and tents, known as Dawson, had sprung up at the mouth of the Klondike, and this was the mecca towards which the great pilgrimage set. The struggle inland of the first comers was a frightful one. No roads or pack trails existed over the rough and lofty passes of the coast range of mountains and it was killing work to transport the many tons of equipments and provisions over the nearly impassable Chilkoot and White Passes. For those who came too late in the season it was quite impassable. The trails and rivers were stopped by snow and ice, and numbers had to endure a long and miserable winter in the primitive coast settlements or straggle back to civilization. The terrors of that first year's battle with the unbroken Passes are indescribable. Thousands of dead-packed horses marked the way and the mountains once crossed and the waters reached new troubles arose. Boats had to be built for the long reach of navigation down the chain of lakes and the Yukon many having brought the necessary boat timbers with them. Six hundred miles of waterways were to be traversed. On some of the short streams connecting the lakes there were dangerous rapids to be run, in which many lost their goods and some their lives. The early winter added ice to the difficulties of the way and the Yukon section of the trip was made by the later comers through miles of drift ice grinding and plowing its way to the peril of the boats, or water travel was checked by the final closing of the stream for the winter, leaving no resource but a long sledging journey over the snow. Those who took the long voyage to the mouth of the Yukon and journeyed by steamer up that stream had their difficulties with ice and current, and it was not uncommon for them to be frozen in leaving them the sole expedient of the dog sled, if they elected to proceed to the diggings without their supplies. Dawson once reached. The trouble and hardship were by no means at an end, having penetrated a total wilderness in an arctic climate, borne on by dreams of sudden fortune. The enthusiastic treasure seekers found new difficulties awaiting them. There was no easy task of digging and panning, as in more favored climes. Winter had locked the golden treasures with its strongest fetters. The ground was everywhere frozen into the firmness of rock. In midsummer it thawed no more than three feet down, and eternal frost reigned below. To reach the gold-bearing gravels the miners had to build fires on the frozen surface and keep these going for 24 hours. This would soften the soil to the depth of some 6 inches. This thrown out. New fires had to be kindled. And thus laboriously the miners burned their way down to the gold-bearing gravel. Usually at a depth of 15 feet. Then other fires were built at the bottom and tunnels made through the 5 feet or more of fey dirt. Which was dug out and piled up to await the coming of flowing water in the spring when the gold might be washed out in the rockers and sluices employed, as may be seen. The buried treasures of these gravel beds were to be won in these pioneer years only by dint of exhausting labor and frightful hardship. They would never have been found at all had not the bars and shores of the streams yielded gold at the surface level. 
yet the extraordinary richness of these gravels, from which as much as 50.000 might be obtained as the result of a winter's work, excited men's imaginations to the utmost, and the stream of gold seekers continued year after year until Dawson grew to be a well-built and populous city and the yearly output of the Klondike mines amounted to more than area code 16000000. The difficulty in reaching the mines grew less year by year. As early as 1898 a railway was begun across the White Pass. It now extends from Skagway more than a hundred miles inland, the lakes and streams being traversed by steamers, so that the purgatory of the early prospectors has been converted into the broad and easy way of the later sinners. The old method of burning into the frozen soil has also been improved on. Steam being now used instead of fire and the pay dirt reached much more rapidly and cheaply by its aid. The Klondike region though largely prospected and worked by Americans, is not in Alaska, Dawson lying 60 miles east of the border, the streams of Alaska itself, so far as they have yet been worked, are far less promising, and yet Alaska has a golden treasure house of its own that may yet prove as prolific as the Klondike itself, this is at Nome, on the shores of Bering Sea, about 25 degrees of longitude nearly due west from Dawson, and 150 miles north of the mouth of the Yukon, here the sands of the sea itself and of its bordering shores have proven splendid gold bearers and have attracted a large population to that inhospitable region. In latitude 65 degrees north, here has grown up a city containing 25.000 inhabitants, and here may be seen the most northerly railroad in the world. In 1898 a soldier, in digging a well on the beach at Nome, saw in the sands thrown up that alluring yellow glint which has led so many men to fortune and so many to death. The story of his find came to the ears of an old prospector from Idaho, who, too ill to go inland, was stranded in the military station of Nome. Spade and pen were at once put to a work and in twenty days the fortunate invalid found himself worth three thousand in gold. At Nome the gold was first found in the beach sands and even in the sands of the sea adjoining the beach, old Neptune being forced to yield part of the treasures he had taken to himself. Later. The bench of higher land stretching back from the beach and the sides of the down-flowing creeks were found to be gold-bearing, the bench gravels being from 40 to 80 feet thick, with gold throughout. A heavy growth of moss covers this coastal plain, under which lie the frozen gravels, which are softened by the use of steam and thus forced to give up their previous freight. That is all we need ask.